Hello and welcome to the Promised Land, the show about Manchester United and part of the 90 Min Podcast Network. I'm Scott Saunders, joined by Rob Blanchett, as ever, after Manchester United scrape three points against Crystal Palace. We're previewing the Leeds game in midweek at Old Trafford and we'll look back at the Palace game and uh, everything in between on today's show as well. We're coming to you a little bit earlier than usual on a Monday because my schedule dictates that I just have no chance of recording this on Tuesday, unfortunately. Uh, Rob, how are you doing? How how was it on Saturday? It was, I, I think, a really nice experience. It was actually one of a, a funny game that even though the result was 2-1 and there was red cards and a little bit of controversy, I think you came out of that ground thinking we would have probably lost this game a year ago. You know, that old adage. Um, but I, ju- I just think with United now, there is just a different kind of resilience, a different DNA to them, where you even have confidence that they're going to pull it round. And even in those final minutes, I was there, everyone was very nervous. But did you hear the ground, Scott? Did it, yeah. did it come through on the oh, TV? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. You know, it was... It was and that was, was, like, was going to be my question, actually. Yeah. It was like one of the like deeper Champions League nights that I can remember where... The stadium is just banging and the fans know that their responsibility to the team is to sing for them. And the team know that their responsibility for the fans, to to their fans, is to play for them. So Palace did all right in the end, but I don't think Palace deserved anything out of the game. They did enough to kind of score a goal and that's fine. But overall, it was really, really nice and kind of sets you up now for this next programme of games to come. Yes, indeed. We'll talk about that in a little bit more depth and look ahead to Leeds. We'll talk about how United will manage without Casemiro, who has been red carded. Marcel Sabitzer came on and I thought looked pretty good. Uh, Just slotted in straight away. We'll talk Marcus Rashford today and we'll talk Erling Haaland. (laughs) Uh, In a Man United context, though, uh, because I think there's a, a bit of a mess happening at City at the moment. And I think maybe there's an example of what Oh, it feels weird to say what not to do with your number nine if you're a, if you're Man United trying to go and sign a striker when Haaland scored that many goals. But the principles are the same in terms of the conversations we had for the last 18 months about Cristiano Ronaldo at Man United. And there's similarities there with City. Anyway, uh, you can subscribe to our show wherever you get your pods, Apple, Google, Spotify, and the likes. And you can usually watch us on Tuesdays and Fridays, but this week we'll do Monday, Thursday, I believe. Uh, so we'll come to you after the Leeds game later this week as well head over to youtube uh like subscribe join the community leave a comment for us and the link should be in the description of this episode if you're listening on an audio platform at underscore scott saunders at underscore rob underscore b and at promise and m-u-r-r twitter handles and get in touch with us as well uh but should off obviously uh start today's show rob it is the 65th anniversary of the munich air disaster uh a word, because uh, obviously this is a very powerful day each year when it comes around. Uh, the United community comes together to remember. Yeah, it's always a sad day. And, you know, just a little bit of history on my side is that, you know, my family, I'm a third generation United fan. Uh, you know, my kids are fourth generation. And I can remember being brought up, going through it with my mum and telling telling me stories about the babes and about how, you know, in, in the kind of in 1958 context, how my my granddad, who I never met, would go to Old Trafford and mourned, obviously, the babes and how awful it was and the day that the news broke when they found out on the radio and they would go to the go to the shop for the newspaper. That's how they got their news, obviously, in those days in the 50s and, and the sheer horror 
of that picture of the plane in Munich on the ground in in wreckage and in bits and not knowing what what's happened to your football team and losing so many so young so uh, it's always a very somber day and even when I talk about it now I can I, I just immediately feel like electric motions in my body and my brain because it's something that's stuck with United fans forever I know as well as time goes on we've still honor the babes and and that will never change you got to remember the DNA of this football club it comes from that moment in 1958 because when those boys died the club became immortal you know around the world people who'd never heard of Manchester United became Manchester United fans and Manchester United supporters because of that moment and that's where the club ultimately grew from from that from that base of tragedy so always really really sad on the bus to the game and back people were talking about Duncan Edwards and it's amazing isn't it all these years later you know 2023 that they're talking about this teenage boy who was going to go and be the best footballer in the world and people still talk about him so incredibly sad but of course we do know that out of that tragedy came incredible success for Manchester United incredible rebuilding and the babes came back and obviously won that first European Cup for an English team. Um, but yeah, sad day, and we'll always remember them. Yeah, uh, beautiful tributes around Old Trafford uh, over the weekend, and I'm sure we'll see see more today as well. Uh, you know, obviously very powerful day, as I mentioned, very sad time, uh, but always good to take a moment to remember, especially on an anniversary, uh, the 65th anniversary as well. Uh, yeah, let's uh, let's move into the rest of the show uh, because the football continues. Uh, United play against Leeds on Wednesday at Old Trafford and are just coming off the back of another three points. Leeds will be... Obviously, this is a massive rivalry. I mean, every time United have played Leeds since they've been promoted... Seems like there's been loads of goals apart from, I think there was one nil-nil draw, but it seems like United seemed to put five past them every time. <laughs> um, I don't know what will happen because United play Leeds in a double header. So they play them at home in the uh, in the fixture that was uh, played after, I think it was because of the death of the Queen that this one was uh, postponed and rescheduled for now. Uh, but mm-hmm. they also then go to Ellen Road at the weekend as well. So it's a double header against the Leeds team who have their fans in their in the away end of Nottingham Forest were singing Get Out Jesse Marsh, this kind of thing. Is this a good time to play Leeds? I think in football terms, you know, whenever a team is failing or not doing what you what they expect to do and they're not at the top of their form, of course it's a good time to play a team that is a little bit dysfunctional. However, this is the War of the Roses. You know, this is this is Lancashire versus Yorkshire. So, you know, in terms of locality, and I think again, maybe this gets missed by wider fans who maybe don't see the history of the clubs or the history of the local area and things like that. This game doesn't matter who's on top or who's playing well. Like Leeds could be two, three divisions below you. If you go and play them in the cup, they're up for it. They want to beat you. They go and play their best game. Of course, they're a Premier League team now and they're having their own kind of issues. Manchester United, I think, will go into this game with kind of salient thoughts. They'll want to go and play their game. They want to do what they want to do. But there's no doubt that the Casemiro factor, that you've lost Casemiro now for three games, as much as you should cope with it, doesn't mean you will. So we can all assume going into the game that United's form is really good. 
United have won 13 on the bounce at Old Trafford now in all competitions, which is a sensational uh, record. Ten Hag's really kind of pushed the team towards that level of standard and success. But Leeds are one of those teams that can just do you on your day. I can remember, it's about I think it's about 10 years ago now, when Leeds came to us in the FA Cup and they were a third division team. And uh, I think it was 2010. Jermaine I think it was Beckford 2010. Scored. Right. I was about to say, right, I walked in the ground and quite often people say to me, oh, Rob, what do you think the score is going to be? And I always say the same thing. Not going to say it. I don't say scores. I'm there to watch the game. I'm not there to jinx the team. You know, I feel that. But I went in the ground that day and I was absolutely cocksure. I went, we're going to smash him 5-0. I said it to people. And then when Beckford scored his goal, I sat there and went, why did I say that? And we got knocked out of the cup and it was horrible. And Leeds United fans dined out on that result for about oh, they six still years. do, yeah. They still do. So, like, you know, it's a long time ago. Leeds fans. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah. it, it is the War of the Roses. It is a derby match, even though Leeds is a significant distance from Manchester. I like to call it the M62 derby because I think one end is, one is, is Liverpool and United and the other end is Leeds. And you drive up that M62 and it's like hell. It's a horrible, horrible journey sometimes. And you get to Leeds and you know what you're going to expect. So two games here, one at Old Trafford and one uh, at Ellen Road. So that's kind of interesting because I never kind of can't remember a double header like this. It's, this is post-World Cup syndrome. Do you, think you approach games differently in that context? Yeah, definitely. And and you know what? It's like uh, someone said to me yesterday, it's like the the obviously the, the Queen's funeral and the death of the Queen shifted the programme. And it means that, you know, if those, that, if those events hadn't happened, Casemiro would be suspended for Wembley so it's weird so you've got these Leeds games now squashed together and all of these events that have happened that have conspired that means that Casemiro will be in your team so those kind of things go for United I think Ten Hag will feel good about that but now you've got to work out a plan haven't you to beat Leeds because they're in a low moment so absolutely take advantage of that go and be the best that you can be and show these Leeds players even though they're young you see I, I, I'm always I think when you play a young team they can just pull the rabbit out of the hat but you've got to really show that you're the more experienced team. So it's on United to win these two games. And at Old Trafford, hopefully just more of the same. But Leeds will be a little bit like Crystal Palace. You know, they'll be resilient and they'll be dogged. They might not have all the quality in the world, but they'll definitely be coming to spoil the party. And we've got to make sure that they don't blow the birthday candles out. So you mentioned there about, um, well, experience and this this kind of stuff and managing the game and making sure you get the result but everything you can say about Casemiro and as good as he mm -hmm. is he's also one of the most experienced players in the team if not the most experienced player at top level football and yeah. in derby situations and pressure situations red card I don't know whether you want to talk about the red card or, or whatever but he's obviously unless United miraculously appeal and get it overturned which I can't see happening <clears throat> uh how will they go about managing without him? Because he obviously leaves a massive hole in front of the defence. Christian Eriksen's out injured. There's no suggestion really Scott McTominay is going to make it back unless something changes in the next uh, 48 hours or so. How will they go about plugging that hole? Well, they've got to plug the hole, first and foremost. Somehow, it's just whether that plug is as good as what you would normally do, isn't it? So... Losing Casemiro, I think, for a derby match is more significant than just your average game. Obviously, like some of the games that we've got coming up here, you might have been happier uh, outside of this, this derby game. But how do you do it? Well, look at the Sabitzer signing now. Like, if you hadn't signed Sabitzer on deadline day, 
you're really in trouble. Like we obviously did a show, didn't we? Where we talked extensively about Kobe Manu and his his potential and what you could have done. Well, these next three games, which are, are big games for United before the cup final, you would have been having a 17-year-old in there, thrown in there to look after or the midfield. Lindorf. <laughs> or Victor Lindorf. Well, do you know, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I've thought a fair bit about Harry Maguire as a six. I know people are like, oh, no, no, no. But I think Maguire's profile in front of a back four not massively dissimilar to Casemiro, just in the sense of the kind of unit that he is. You know, like you can go and track a play rather than having to be in position. You've got a little bit more freedom as the six. So I actually think that that Maguire is, is, is just as suitable as Lindelof there. They're both ball players. I don't really want to see either of them there. Not really, like not, not in an ideal world, you know, where the sky is blue and the sun is shining. You know, I don't really want those two there. I want, I want, Casemiro, please. But you got Sabitza. And I think with Sabitza, you saw this in that tiny cameo that he had when he came on against Palace. He's not going to be short of confidence. He's a kind of self-managing footballer. I think he knows what he's good at and he's going to play to his strengths. Uh, and he's a leader. So you've lost a leader with Casemiro and you're gaining a leader. So a better scenario you would have been than, than say, the day before transfer deadline day where it looked like you weren't getting anyone the Ericsson injury might be a tiny blessing in disguise just because you went and got that extra player who now might be useful in the weeks ahead and might even carve himself into a starter. Like he could play that number eight role when Casemiro comes back. So uh, a, a bit of a, a an audition between him and Fred about who plays with Casemiro for the rest of the season, isn't it? These next three games, I think, will go a long way towards that. So without Casemiro there, how do you think he would go? Let's let's say it's a bit, sir. Would Sabitzer come and plug that Casemiro hole and Fred would just do what Fred's been doing? Or is it Fred drops back in and covers those responsibilities and Sabitzer comes into the role that we expect to see him in? I think what you what we'll see, if we take the Crystal Palace game as a, yeah. as, a, as, a, as a kind of a little bit of a template about what Ten Hag is doing and then trying to apply it forward... We still know that it is definitely going to be the four-one-five. That is not going to change. That happens every week. You see the shape morph in every match when they get the press set and everyone gets in their positions. That is what they are doing. That is the tactic. So I don't think that that Ten Hag is going to flip his tactics for that. It might be more four-two-three-one at times, just because. But ultimately, I think what you'll see is that Fred knowing the system means that it's more likely that he will play the six. Because that is the more that's the role where you have to know the system. So Bitzer, I don't know if you noticed in that 10 minutes, did get dragged in and out of position a little bit, just a little bit, not not wildly, but isn't it difficult, Scott? You go to a new club and yeah, you're good at pressing and you want to impress and you want to run around and show everyone that you're you're up for the fight. But the real nuance of tactics, you've got you've got to know them all. So he will learn them in the next few days, no doubt. But going into this kind of game, if United are playing a 4-1-5, just say Leeds are not very good on the day, both games. Good for United. It means one of them can sit and you're not really debating it too much. Who goes forward, Sabitzer or Fred? But I think it'll be Sabitzer as the eight. I think Sabitzer will, Sabitzer will do the Ericsson role now and Fred will probably do the Casemiro role simply because the Casemiro role requires more discipline and Fred knows that role more. doesn't mean Fred's more disciplined. It just means that's all you've got. <laughs> so if Scotty was fit and available, I wouldn't be surprised to see McTominay play the six yeah. because we've seen that this season. So you know, you just said that he won't be ready. I will not be surprised if they've got McTominay on a treatment table somewhere now and they're knocking nails and bits of wood into him and patching him up 
And then magically, Scott McTominay's in the warm-up against Leeds and people are like, I didn't want him in the team, but that might happen. Do not be surprised because we are hearing he's making strides. We, we, we're hearing that kind of it's not a definite no, but he isn't fit. He hasn't been fit. So I think that would be a risk. And I'm happy with some bits from Fred. If you're going to play that 4-1-5, you don't really have to change too much. Everything else stays the same. Have we ever spoke about your thoughts on Lisandro Martinez playing that role? Malassia comes into left back, Luke Shaw tucks in. We've talked about it in, you know, eons gone by. And I like the idea of Martinez as a six. I think he can definitely do it. What do we know, though, about Martinez as a six? Well, we know that Tenog doesn't really like it. And he said it out loud. He doesn't really like the profile of the player to have to be a defensive player to go and plug holes from that position. He can definitely do it. I think the problem, though, Scott, and you've got to kind of think about this expansively, you've got a left-sided centre-back who's in great form. Do you then move him to fill another role, to then fill someone in his role, which would probably be Luke Shaw, to then bring in another player at left-back? So you're changing three positions because you lost one. I don't think that's smart. I think that's a problem. And I think this manager has shown with his nature that he will try and keep things as settled as possible. So I like the idea of Martinez as a six temporarily. I don't think it happens simply because Ten Hag will be keeping him there and he has got options to play that role a little bit deeper. I said on one of my previous shows, you know, I hate the term defensive midfielder. Man United do not play with a defensive midfielder. They play with number six. So who can do the modern number six function? You've got Fred and Sabitzer that can do it. Scotty can do it at a push, but he's not very good at it. And then you might end up having, say, Lindelof deputising for three games as an auxiliary six, you know, just as a ball carrier, just give me the ball and let me move it on. He could probably do that. I think Maguire could as well. You have other options. Um, and it's about maybe not reinventing the wheel simply because you've lost one player. You've got to try and keep the other 11 positions or the other 10 positions, you could say, you know, as solid and with that foundation that you've built on in the last few weeks. Quick word on Casemiro's red. <laughs> your your thoughts. I've seen you've tweeted about it. Yeah, well, you know, for all our viewers and our listeners, uh, you know, my handle is there, uh, underscore Rob, underscore B. Go see it on Twitter. I've put on there that I, with my view from the ground, you can see from where I sit in, I, we were right in front of it. Um, I thought it was much ado about nothing. I think VAR was not invented for these things. VAR is not there to be, uh, to look at micro nuance. It's there to look at clear and obvious errors. And there were quite a few grabbing and holding one for another. You do see from the camera from where we sit on this side that he does not do this. He does this. Now, it's only a little thing, a little difference. Like his hands for the are... benefit of the audio uh, listener, Rob is grabbing collar versus grabbing neck. Yeah, there's a difference, isn't it? Like you had, are you there who actually grabbed Fred by the throat? And VAR didn't see that. Oh, Sad days. But yet, Casemiro is pushing a player back by here, by the top of his shirt. And it is rounded near his throat, but it's not It's not on his throat. That's the clear bit. Scott, this is about technicalities. Is that violent conduct? That's what you get your three-match ban for. The truth is that all the camera angles absolutely prove unequivocally that it's not a violent conduct. So United have to be, decide whether they're brave to appeal it. They probably won't because you want that guy in the cup final. You know you do. And you, you might lose him by an extra game going there. It wouldn't be frivolous but you would be three matches going into Wembley. But it wasn't violent conduct. And I think they got duped. I don't want referees getting duped by VAR because it did look like it by VAR from that camera angle. My answer is have more camera angles VAR. You've got to have more. You can't have that one angle 
and make a decision on the front because it looks like that, but it isn't. You see the one from the side? Did you see it, Scott? It, it's clear he puts his hands up there, but he never, never grabs his throat ever, not at one stage. It just looks like he does. And you've got to be smart about these things. It changed, could have changed the game, couldn't it? Like if you if you draw that game because of that moment or even lose it, you know, that's, that's a huge moment where the referees have changed the game. So, yeah, it wasn't a red card. It, it wasn't even really a yellow card, you know. And I, and I think if United did take it to a hearing, I think they would win. But I just don't know whether they're brave enough to take on the FA in a short period of time. I think Ten Hag summed it up quite well, though, obviously. He did you know in terms of the fact that Casemiro was not the only one involved in that and there were other possible instances everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger McNuggets or McCrispy Sandwich but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day that crispy fish that savoury tartar sauce that melty cheese that pillowy bun yeah you get it every time and if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is where uh, other cards could have followed. But obviously he does take a risk even putting his arms up that high. So I think that was, that was probably the best way to kind of go about it. You take and obviously the refereeing performance the other day was not great. I mean, that that's that Sabitzer kind of tackle oh, and no. pass was ju- in the last few minutes was just awful. Um, the decision to blow up for a foul. I, I completely lost my proverbials in that moment because, again, it was right in front of us. And when he robbed the ball, I remember thinking, oh, my God, what a we tackle were in. that is. It robbed it Ra- and Rashford in. in and we had an he extra man. Plays the ball through and Rashford, as I said, got this straight line to the goalkeeper. And you think what's the referee doing? So like, I don't like to criticise referees because I do think it's a tough job. I really do. And and I think that's why they need VAR. They need some kind of technical support and some video support. But we're still in English football ironing out what VAR means and what referees are supposed to do. And that's not good, is it? We're supposed to have the best league in the world, the quickest, most aggressive league, and we want to m- let it play out. And all... no, it's all rubbish, isn't it? Just do it properly. Do it to the rules uh, and, and look after the football match itself. So... Uh, I'd like to see more cameras for VAR. That's my solution. More cameras and and an involvement that is much more clearer because I think at the moment still VAR has this kind of ambiguity. I can't even say it at this time of the morning, uh, which you shouldn't really have. I don't know if you saw in Syria, Scott, they've really gone the other way. Have you seen Mm. it with the automated offside and people are going mad because the automated offside picks up a kind of naught point <laughs> one <laughs> millimeter of offside and people are like, but is that offside? Well, it is, but you need to probably change the rule, not criticize VAR. You may be able to have a little this bit. This is a thing a... people don't understand is the rule often more often than not, it's the rule, which isn't fit. Uh, yeah. The video cameras. And we debate the rule, not VAR. Like VAR has been demonized and it wasn't VAR's fault that from one camera angle, it looks like he's throttling him. But from another camera angle that VAR is not privy to, it looks like he's got his hands up here. You need more camera angles. That's the answer, isn't it? The answer is to actually have more information, not less. So I, I know people hate VAR. I know they'll always hate it. It's going to be one of those things, isn't it? But, you know, VAR did give Man United a penalty on the day. So we can't moan about it in that context because that penalty does not get given. And we straight away knew it was The argument is, though, that the ref should have given it anyway. That's the argument. But I think when you're on the touchline and the ball's coming in quickly, the referee's always going to be behind that play. He's always going to be outside the box. And that is a kind of 20-meter decision. 
that is really difficult to see in a split second. So that's why you need VAR, because his hand was out there and it did hit his hand. We saw it. We all claimed penalty straight away. And I was like, that's going to VAR. That's a penalty. And we all felt good. And we waited. It got the penalty. We got one nil. We're happy. So VAR does have its benefits, I would think, more than its negatives. Talking of... uh... No, I can't. I can't do this tight end. I was going to talk of benefits. Marcus Rashford is benefiting from whatever he's benefiting from at the moment. We wanted to talk about him. Uh, hell of a. He's just a completely different player. Rob wanted to do a section today. Apparently, have you have you seen this fallout? Rob is doing Marcus Rashford celebration, and everybody's losing their minds. The fact that it's not Rashford celebration, he didn't invent it. Ruben Neves scored a goal at the weekend and pointed to his head and said, "That's mine. This is mine." Who cares, man? I I'm going to say I invented it. So because you, you can see it on a camera now on YouTube, if you go on our channel, you can see me doing the Rashford. <sighs> yeah, yeah, look, I I like the celebration because it's simple, but also. It is, it's really telling, isn't it? Yeah, Last it year, is. Marcus didn't have this. He had this. And I'm pointing out to the middle of my forehead. And that was probably overthinking, probably too many things on his mind. Here now, and he's, he's much clearer about, I think, what his role is in the team. And he's much braver. And that goal against Palace just epitomised what we've always wanted to see from Marcus, isn't it? Six yards out, no fuss, no problem. He slots it away. That's, that's you know, two now he scored. In exactly. Recently. He scored two very recently, what you would call Dima's tap-ins. And I always said this, if you get your tap-ins every season, that is always the difference between kind of nearly getting there and getting there, getting over the hump. Because tap-ins are really important. And the teams that do it well win titles. And the teams that don't do it very well end up fifth. And that's the, that's the gulf between doing the real little basics at the top end of the pitch. Marcus Rashford now, you would feel good about him anywhere from six, seven yards now, wouldn't you? The ball comes to him. You're not thinking he's going to take 12 touches. He's not going to try and do a lollipop. And No, 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 no. He's lethal. He knows you just need to pass the ball, keep it low, put it to a side of the goalkeeper, make the goalkeeper work. Great. Marcus Rashford is now a number nine in his head. And that's what we've always wanted. So I think you're seeing that Marcus Rashford now, I said this to you off camera, we can ask the expansive question, here, post-World Cup, in this little window since we've restarted the Premier League, that is Marcus Rashford currently on form, all these little caveats, the best player in the world? And I would say, on, on current form, Marcus Rashford is certainly the best forward in the world, but I would go as far as saying that he's the best player in the world. I think his all-round game is devastating from the left, from the centre, he can do it on the right, he does the press... He gets in behind. He can run people. He can score goals. He gets assists. He's doing everything, Scott. And I think he deserves his flowers. Yeah, I think at the moment, I can't think of a player anywhere in world football that's up there. I think maybe Osserman for what Osserman's doing at Napoli. When you look at the Arsenal boys. Is there anyone there at Arsenal? I think at some point, you know, maybe they're more of a collective, like their midfield and their attack and how they work. You know, Zichchenko now playing forward. I don't think Zichchenko's the best player in the world. He's very, very good. But I think as an individual, Marcus Rashford at the moment is now hitting elite standard that we never, ever thought this boy could, could really attain. Imagine a year ago us having this conversation. Imagine six weeks ago us having this conversation. Like, imagine pre-World Cup when people were saying whether Marcus should be in the England squad. That was a debate. That was a thing. You know, People, people wanted Marcus like, Rashford sold last year. <clears throat> People people were saying in the summer, weren't they? 
Rashford's one of the guys you've got to get rid of. Rashford's a problem. Rashford's got too much happening off the pitch. You know, Rashford feeds the kids and that's a problem. <coughs> Excuse me. All of these things you see are just hyperbole. They're just, just rubbish, ultimately, at the end of the day. It's about getting tactics and a manager that can get the most out of players. And I think we're seeing that with Marcus and Ten Hag. And that is where this comes from, the point into the noggin here. Because I think it's just that he's got those things sorted in his head now about what his responsibilities are in his team. And like he's a United fan. He's a Mancunian. He wants to do well for United. There's no doubt about it. I never question those things. But he needs tactics. He needs a manager to tell him what to do. So I think this is actually also, I've got Eric Ten Hag in my head. That's who I've got up here running everything now. And I'm taking the glory for it. So good times. I think he's the best player in the world on form. And long may it continue. Because I think if he stay, keeps his form to next summer, Scott, then good things for United. Trophies, top four, and then really rebuilding in the summer towards maybe a championship contending side. You know, you're only three points behind Man City. So you're in the position you want to be. Marcus Rashford also winning player of the month <laughs> just recently as well. For the second time this season, I believe, Premier League Player of the Month. I think uh, co concurrent months, isn't it? Is it, is it straight? No, it's one, not. I think... Uh, or two I out of three then? Yeah, it's... I think he might have won it around October time. I can't remember the exact month. Uh, but yes, obviously great form. Marcus Rashford mm -hmm. is in great form. Rob has made his statement. Leave a comment for us if you, if you agree, if you disagree. I'm going to go on a podcast uh, show later that is not only for Man United fans. And I think if I said that, I'd get killed. But Say uh, it. <laughs> say it. Get on there and I'll have say a, I'll it. I'll have a think about it. But um, yeah, Marcus Rashford in great form. And showing that he can score tap-ins, which is quite something. That, uh, profound, mate. It's yeah, profound, it's, isn't it? Yeah. It's what we've always wanted. really is. Uh, somebody else who scored tap-ins this season is Erling Haaland at Man City. <laughs> However, he wants more than tap-ins, doesn't he? I think he wants those straight, direct through balls in behind for him to run onto. Uh, and Man City are not passing him the ball. Uh, and the question for this section, the final section of today's show, is have Man is a Man City the example of what not to do with your number nine if you are looking to sign a number nine, which Man United are looking to do this summer. So that could be derided as a ridiculous question, given you know Mika Richards is on telly saying he scored twenty five goals, he scored twenty five goals, he scored twenty five goals. But Man City are second in what was a one-horse race from the very early part of the season. United can actually go level on points with them, albeit with a, having played a game more if they beat Leeds in midweek. And Man City are not hitting the heights. You got Kevin De Bruyne on the bench. You got Jao Cancelo who's been shipped out on loan to Bayern. You got a number of other players who can't get in the team. Ruben Diaz, I know he's been injured, but he's not playing. Uh, nothing is not going right at City, is it? And why do, why do you want to make this point, Rob? What is it about Erling Haaland that is firing the warning signs to you about United? I wanted to make the point because I think you, you can sometimes learn from looking at your nearest rivals and looking at what they're doing well and try and duplicate some of it. You can do that. And, and I think that when we've looked at City and Liverpool over the last, say, five or six years, for some reason, some idiot at Manchester United over time hasn't looked at it and gone, why don't we just copy what they're doing? 
and work to their blueprint and, and then expand ours. But you can also do the opposite, Scott, and look at where teams are failing, where they've actually had success and say, well, we want to stay away from that. Now, we talked a lot over time about the number nine and about what number nines do, what they, the modern game. I think if you go on television there, you'll still see people like Mika Richards. You'll, they'll talk about Graham Souness. They'll all still talk about number nine's their job is to put the ball in the net. So that's what you judge at number nine on. But that is not what we judge number nines on anymore. Number nines have to do more than put the ball in the net. So the reason why I wanted to speak about it is twofold. Because one, we're seeing that this is a real, a real problem for Manchester City in terms of the Guardiola style. And they've got this generational striker and why these two things do not fit. Like you just mentioned Jao Cancelo. Jao Cancelo five minutes ago, one of the best players in the world, doesn't fit in his team anymore. Gone. Bye-bye. Where's Phil Foden gone? You know, he suddenly doesn't fit in this team, you know, on the bench. They're having to rotate stuff to try and make it work for for uh, for Haaland. You just mentioned earlier on as well about the Casemiro factor. You know, do you change three, four, five positions for one player? Well, no, that's not smart either, I don't think. And that's what's happening at Man City. They're putting out an 11 to try and get the best out of Haaland. But you're never going to find Haaland in this style of football. Like Haaland cannot play this kind of slow possession football by picking the lock. He's not a pick the lock striker. So Manchester United are going to be in this little scenario in the summer, aren't they? They're going to be looking for a number nine. They're going to be looking for their version of Haaland. I think what this is showing, Scott, is that don't go and buy a number nine that just scores goals or just puts the ball in the net. You actually kind of need what Rashford's doing. You've already got Rashford. So you need someone who can do it all in different roles in the, in the front three. No one is criticising Erlen Haaland. It is not Erlen Haaland's fault. It's not the players' fault at Manchester City either. This is actually the recruitment side. They got Haaland because they thought, he's the cherry on the cake, he will score lots of goals. But do you know what, Scott? If he has a one-in-one ratio over 50 games this season and gets 50 goals in 50 games, but you don't win any silverware, what is the point? There's no point. So this is the point I wanted to make because I think with Manchester United, we're seeing an increase with Manchester United and what did they do, Scott, only a few weeks ago? They got rid of that striker who can only score goals. Yeah, that guy who's built his whole career on being a goat in the box, but actually really hurt you in your football. And Manchester United are a better team post-World Cup because they haven't got Cristiano and because they've got Valt Weghorst up top. That's a strange thing to say, but it is the absolute truth. I think Manchester City were better with Gabriel Jesus at the top. And let's be honest, Arsenal are now better than Manchester City because they've got a Gabriel Jesus in their squad. So I think it's all there for people to see. This rebuilding for Manchester United now in the next uh, section, who do you go and sign? I think the only player that fits you at the moment to get better at number nine, and people don't like it, is the guy that just got his 200th goal in the Premier League. I think Harry Kane fits the system, and that's what's more important to me, is that you have a striker that fits systems. That was a little bit of a diatribe, a bit of a longer one. But I don't know, what do you think, Scott? You tell us what you think about the number nine. I think you're onto something. We have had this conversation, Rob, about Harry Kane, haven't we? Uh, I think made myself pretty clear. Although that was always my my point of view was always predicated on Spurs not being very good for the rest of the season, mm. and I think he'd probably be a lot more difficult to get out of Spurs if they finish in the top four. And I think we saw Spurs over the last few weeks being absolutely terrible. But it seems like they've turned a corner, yeah. and. They have enough talent in that squad. They've signed a couple of players who fill gaps. 
I think maybe they could end up steaming into top four by the end of the season. We'll see because they have enough firepower to do it, certainly. Uh, and whether that makes it more difficult for United, we'll, we'll never know. Well, we will find out in the next few weeks. But I think Newcastle are probably the one at risk at the moment because they're having trouble with, uh, with their attack. But anyway, Harry Kane has been my pick for that. I mean, I'm starting to warm with Dusan Vlajevic and that idea, actually, because I think he would be a potential decent alternative. Osserman is obviously the most popular choice, but I think, you know, do you kind of fall into the same trap there uh, with with him? Yes, and 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 I think the thing is with Osserman, like, I, really, I, I really love Osserman's game. You know, he's a fantastic player to watch and... He's taking Italy by storm. It is worth noting that for the people that say Harry Kane gets injuries, well, Osserman's had injuries. So, you know, there's a kind of little bit of a trade-off there. Yes, Osserman, I think, is a is the better long-term prospect, but I don't think you're buying for five, ten years in the future. You're buying for next season and, and the season after. So you've got to kind of have a think, smaller window. I think what all this shows, Scott, really, with the number nine, is that Man United have got options now in this part of the park that maybe they didn't have before, not just within the club, but when you're targeting players, because you might not need the 50 goal a season striker. I know fans want it, like they're desperate for it. You know, they want the superhero at the top end of the pitch, but you might just need to go and find your Gabriel Jesus. Go and find someone in Europe that does the role, that plays false, that can drop in, that can play the press, and it makes the other five players there with him in the press and the defensive midfielder, I don't want to use that term, but the number six, that you're better unit. That's what's got to matter, Scott. That's why you win games every week. You don't win games because you've got a hot shot striker. People will say Napoli are going to win the title maybe because of Osserman. Well, yes, of course, to an extent, Osserman is the news headline, but it's because of the team. So you've got to make your team better. And I think Manchester City is a really good example and Liverpool to an extent where their team has depreciated in quality because they're focused on maybe that one or two key positions that haven't worked. Liverpool got in with Darwin Nunes, Cody Gakpo. They're finding that difficult to replace Mane. Salah looks like half, quarter, a third, a little bit of a player. Doesn't look like the same mm. Salah, does he? He looks like he's thinking, couldn't get out of here in the summer. Let's have maybe my time at Real Madrid is finally going to come. I think he might be out the door. You look at Man City. How do they solve this Harlem problem? Well, they can give Harlem the ball more in the box and he probably will hit the target more often than not. But how do you get him the ball in the box when you play slow build-up possession style? You know, how does how does Jack Grealish actually prove that he's worth £100 million by getting the ball to that centre forward when Jack Grealish wants to stand on the side of the touchline and hold the ball for 12 seconds and then get fouled? It's difficult. It. What do you do? So City will have to buy other players to help Haaland, but they can't do it now, can they? So let's see what happens for the rest of the season. If I'm an Arsenal fan, I'm looking down at Man City and I'm thinking, yeah, these games against them, this is where we dust them now. We sort them out because we're a better team than them. But of course, Man City, we know that they like to pull it out the fire sometimes. They've got they've got the talent. It's just that whether can, can Guardiola change? I don't believe they can. And I think Ten Hag's the same. I think Ten Hag is a bit like Guardiola. I have my system. I'm going to fit plays into my system. I'm not just going to rip it up every week. I think that will be the number nine that Man United buy. Maybe not the number nine that fans want. Just one point there. I mean, I'm not a City fan by any stretch, but it's even frustrating to me to watch when Bernardo Silva had the ball. I noticed it twice in the first three minutes where he had the ball and Erling Haaland made a run yesterday and he didn't pass it. Maybe that's the answer, but also you would think that that's probably instructions from Pep and his style. He doesn't really want that pass. Totally. 
It's absolutely that. And how do you tell a team that's won the title over and over again, four times in the last five years, that they're now wrong? How do you tell these players that all the things they've done that's made them like Phil Foden going into the World Cup, people are saying one of the best midfielders in the world, but it can't get in the team. You know, you've just told Jao Cantelo, best fullback in the world, but now you're no longer good enough for my system. It doesn't work. So you're going to have to go. It's mad, isn't it? And there'll be players within the camp. We know that Bernardo Silva wanted to go to Barcelona many, many times over the last few months. Bernardo Silva is now out. He's going. He's mm-hmm. not going to hang around to be told that he's not good enough anymore. So I think you saw it as well. Gundogan came on. And you kind of think, well, it doesn't work with Gundogan any- anymore. Gundogan, one season, getting 18, 19 goals. You win the title. He's the hero. Now you've got to sit on the bench, Gundogan. There's a lot of problems at Man City. I think we've seen it at Man United as well, though, haven't we, over time? Like, how do you fit everyone with Cristiano? It doesn't work. Oh, whose fault is it? Cristiano or the players? Well, it's up to the manager to fix it. I think Guardiola would have to go into the transfer market radically in the summer. And you might see City do a bit of a Chelsea. You might see them buy eight players, spend 600 million because they've got the money. Because I think it's going to be a radical overhaul for them to remain as relevant as they want to be with Erling Haaland scoring all the goals. We'll have to wrap it there. United play Leeds on Wednesday and we'll be back on Thursday to talk about that and uh, digest what's happened. Hopefully another three points on their way, but we'll see. You can subscribe wherever you get your pods to our show, The Promise and the Man United podcast on Apple, Google, Spotify and the likes. And head over to YouTube. You can follow us on there. Subscribe, uh, leave a like on the video, leave a comment as well. Join the community with us. And uh, yeah, we are doing video there. So if you want to get your video fix, then uh, just move over there if you're doing audio currently. The link should be in the description of this episode if you're listening on an audio platform as well to that channel. And just another reminder, you can follow us on Twitter at underscore Scott Saunders, at underscore Rob underscore B, and at Promise and MU for the show. That is it for today. Thank you very much, Rob. I'll catch you later in the week uh, for some more Promise Land, a Manchester United podcast. We'll see you soon, everyone. Thanks for listening.